Hello friends, my name is Brenna and I'm Danny, and, and this, this is Lago Stories. Today's episode contains graphic information that some listeners may find disturbing. Listeners discretion is advised. Welcome back to episode 14, which also happens to be the last episode before October. Danny, are you ready for spooky season? Ooh, girl, yes, you know, I already have the house decorated, my pajamas out, I am ready for it. And as you guys may have picked up on, spooky season is mine and Brenna's favorite. So to show our love for spooky season, we have a little gift for you guys this month. But you guys will just have to check it out and see for yourself. So check back in with us. Definitely. Well, today's episode, and I know I say this a lot, but it is really a gruesome one with some twists and turns. So if you're ready, we can get right into it. I'm gonna need you to say yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is a forced yes. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Today's case begins with the disappearance of Susan Powell. Susan Powell was 28 years old when she was reported missing by family members on December 7, 2009. Susan was married to Josh Powell and they raised two boys, Charlie and Braden Powell. And before I get into the disappearance, I wanna share a bit of background on the family. Susan was described by family and friends as a beautiful and kind-hearted girl who loved horses. Josh was cocky but was bright and interested in attending college for business. Susan and Josh first met in Puyallup, Washington at a singles event for young Mormons. Susan was 18 years old and Josh was in his 20s at the time. The couple fell hard for one another quickly and after dating for only a couple months were engaged to be married. Although one of Susan's sisters was hesitant about the quick engagement, Susan assured her that she was extremely happy and they both wanted the same things in life. Home videos recorded by Josh's father also showed this blossoming relationship and the couple seemed like a great match. The couple was married in April of 2001, but like a lot of newlyweds, they didn't have much money. Susan moved in with Josh's father, Stephen Powell, and they both worked odd jobs to pay the bills in the beginning. Shortly into the marriage, Susan became the breadwinner as she was able to keep a steady job, whereas Josh was in and out of different employment. After living with Stephen for a bit, Susan and Josh decide to move to West Valley City, Utah in search for better economic opportunities and just a better life in general overall. Shortly after buying a home in Utah, Susan gave birth to her first son, Charlie, and about two years later, she gave birth to their second son, Brayden. Friends and family did note that Josh seemed to be an unattached father as he would never assist with changing diapers, feeding, or bathing his sons, but he did like to show them off occasionally. Susan, however, adored the boys and they were her life. So don't like that, the no changing, feeding, Mm -hmm. but I'm gonna show you off because I'm your dad thing, never leads to great outcomes. Unfortunately, seeing it lead into divorce and just very unhappy marriages with friends of mine so this is not starting out great yeah absolutely and I feel like that was I don't want to say a trend but like back in this era you know early 2000s it was like men were like no I'm not do that yeah (laughs) it's like excuse me I'm glad we're a little bit past that though yeah for sure and I know you said that Susan was the breadwinner 
So did they ever say like what her steady job was? And then when they did finally have the kids, did she keep that role or did it transition? So I'm not sure if it was the same job from Washington to Utah. I know for sure in Utah, she worked for a bank. So I'm not sure if she was able to just like transfer or get another similar job or what that employment was, but for sure she works at a bank in Utah. Okay. Okay, now that you have some basic information on the family, let's go back to 2009. On December 7th, Debbie Codwell, who is Charlie and Braden's daycare provider, becomes suspicious by 7 a.m. when Susan hasn't dropped off the boys yet. Susan had to be at work by 7, and it was out of character for her to be late without calling ahead. She tries several times to contact Susan and Josh, but is not able to get a hold of either of them. A worried Debbie then drives by the family home and knocks on the door, but no one answers. She also notices that there's no tire tracks in the snow on the driveway. Even more concerned, she reaches out to their emergency contacts, which are Josh's mother and sister. Josh's sister, Jennifer Graves, also knows this is out of character for the family, so she decides to call police for a welfare check as she fears maybe there was gas left on and they needed help inside. There was also a huge snowstorm that was supposed to be coming in the next day or two. When police show up, there is no probable cause to enter the home. However, they tell Josh's sister, Jennifer, that if she agrees to replace a window, that they can break it and enter the home that way. She immediately agrees and police enter the family home. Upon entering the home, police did not see any signs of a struggle or anything to be missing or in a disarray. However, they did note that Susan's purse was left on the table with her car keys and wallet inside. They also asked Jennifer, what's up with all the fans? Jennifer had no explanation for that. There were box fans that were left on and pointed towards or laying on top of the carpet in the living room as to dry it. The family minivan was also not parked in the garage. Because the family was not in the home, police file a missing persons report for all four members. So at this point, all four family members are missing. Correct. Also, I want to go back to the breaking the window thing. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, so, and I wasn't sure either if that was, you know, like a one-off or, you know, maybe that was a thing back then and then, you know, they couldn't get people to like, you know, sign a contract on the spot and it became a whole thing. But yeah, no, I definitely was like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand, but also like you're breaking it. I, I don't know. <laughs> why would I, I go back and forth? Yeah. But also, like, why should the police pay if. I don't know. That's, yeah. But that, that really, I was like, huh. And also, like, you know, you see those movies where they just bang down the door. I don't know why. <laughs> right. Get after Kick that. It. <laughs> yeah. But that was interesting. Yeah. And Susan and Josh's family began calling around to see if anyone had heard from them. Giovanna, a fellow congregation member, says that the last time she saw the family was actually the night before. On Sunday, December 6th, Susan invites Giovanna over to their home to help with her knitting and crocheting. While they were in the living room, Josh came in and offered to cook dinner for everyone. Now, this was odd because in addition to not helping care for the boys, Josh never really did anything domestic at all. Josh even had to call his father, Stephen, to ask for a recipe for pancakes. But with the boys in the kitchen, Josh cooks the pancakes individually and serves Giovanna and Susan in the living room. This was also unusual as Josh and Susan's family had never witnessed them eating in the living room. Not long after eating dinner, Susan said she wasn't feeling well and laid down. 
Josh then suggested to Giovanna that it was time for her to go and that he was going to take the boys sledding. Giovanna, for an ABC 2020 episode named If Something Happens to Me, stated she remembered Josh and the boys being outside before she could finish putting on her seatbelt. This was around 5 p.m. 24 hours later, Josh calls his sister back and explains that he has the boys with him, but Susan wasn't. When he returns home an hour later, he tells family and police that he took the boys on a late-night camping trip, but that Susan didn't come along because she was tired. Now, if you didn't catch that, Josh decided last minute, practically in the middle of the night, to take the boys on a camping trip to the Utah desert in freezing cold weather. Of course, that sounds quite unbelievable, but a friend of Josh and Susan said that was 100% him. Josh would definitely do something like that. Before Josh had been heard from, it was also said Josh liked driving around and taking pictures, so they thought that was another possible scenario for the disappearance. The car got stuck something like that. Susan's family and friends, however, said that there was no way Susan would ever allow Josh to take the kids. Yeah, as soon as you said camping, I was like, yeah, you're wrong. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> no. Nor would I ever want or enjoy that. <laughs> That's right. And if true. I did enjoy it, I wouldn't bring my children with me because they wouldn't either want yeah. or enjoy that. And I don't know if I mentioned, but the boys right now are two and four years old. So they're yeah. little. No. Itty bitty. Would not like that. Also, it just sounds like a lot of of out-of-character things like, hey, I'll help you cook or cook for you, but I never do that, or let's eat in the living room, which that's bizarre. Like, I'm eating in the bed, in the bathtub, (laughs) outside. (laughs) I've never heard of someone, like, if someone was like, wow, that's weird that Danielle doesn't eat in her living room, I'd be like, it's weird for me to eat anywhere. Yeah, but I think that was also common back in the early 2000s, Yeah, like, everything was a lot more Family dinner, you know, yeah. So, mm-hmm. nowadays, yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, bed pizza. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now that Susan is still unaccounted for, police have Josh follow them to the station for more information so they can locate Susan. Josh insisted on bringing the boys with him, but once being interviewed, he seemed more focused on the boys than answering police's questions. All he could really tell police is that once they set up camp, they made s'mores and he didn't know where Susan was or anywhere she could possibly be. Now, of course, Josh's story of this spontaneous camping trip was already suspicious, but police really were perplexed as to Josh's reluctance and lack of questions from Josh to police. I mean, why wouldn't he want to know what the police were doing to find his wife? Police asked Josh if they could search the family minivan and he agrees. Police discover a bunch of camping gear to include a generator, a tarp, a shovel, open graham crackers, etc. They also search through several burnt items found in trash bags, and one metal item was so severely burnt that police could not determine what it was. Even more alarming, they find Susan's cell phone in the van's middle console without the SIM card. When police told Josh that they found Susan's cell phone in the van, it was said that he was a deer in headlights and didn't say anything. Police were able to determine that Josh left a voicemail for Susan from Point of the Mountain, Utah, that he was coming home and that he somehow missed a day and how stupid that was. So the voicemail was when he was coming home from this quote-unquote camping trip? Correct, yeah. So the camping trip was about Sunday or really Saturday night at midnight and he calls Susan Laser voicemail saying, oh, I somehow missed a day, like... I thought it was going to be Sunday, not Monday. 
<laughs> I just can't. That's How so stupid. stupid was that one? <laughs> that's yeah. stupid you're even speaking that word. Yeah. Like, well, I don't yeah. even understand that. Yeah. Like, you're, you're on a good track, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> but there's more. So the following morning, Josh is observed by neighbors cleaning out the family van in the driveway. All four doors were open as he wiped everything down and vacuumed the floors. Jennifer also witnessed Josh running around the house later, cleaning and washing towels until she finally reminds him that he has another interview with police. Similar to the interview from the previous night, Josh was not helpful and even told police he could not remember what the family did Saturday night from 6 p.m. until he left with the boys around midnight. Charlie, however, provided police in a separate area a different story. He told detectives that mommy did go camping with them, but she didn't come back. He goes on to say that they took an airplane to Dinosaur National Park and that mommy had to, quote, stay at Dinosaur National Park with the crystals, end quote. Now, clearly a four-year-old statement wouldn't be all clear-cut, but the fact that he does say she went camping with them but didn't come back raised the alarm bells. When detectives told Josh what Charlie said, he froze. After a couple seconds, he told them he, Charlie, knows she didn't come with us. Police asked Josh if his sons lie and he replied, sometimes they do. Now, police could arrest him on the suspicion of murder. However, they only had circumstantial evidence, and they really wanted to find Susan. So instead of placing Josh under arrest, they placed a GPS tracker device on the family van in hopes that Josh would lead them to her. Instead, Josh went to the airport, rented a car, and vanished from police's radar for 18 hours. When the rental car was returned, the odometer had an additional 807 miles. So, did he know that they placed a tracker on the car? It was unclear that he did. I think it did happen to be a coincidence. Um, But I think he kind of knew maybe they might follow him. And, Mm. you know, maybe he could lose track of them that way. Not sure. And then the, does the crystals have any... Okay, yeah. So, and... I, I kind of thought it was cute, but it's also extremely sad at the same time. Or it's theorized that dinosaurs and crystals, he was actually talking about like fossils and mm-hmm. that mommy was in the ground, kind of like the dinosaur fossils or crystals. Oh, God. But obviously that's, you know, theorized. So. So sad. Yeah. At a dead end, police searched for months in the Utah deserts for any sign of Susan, but had no luck. It was said that Josh once told a friend that the best place to dispose of a body was in an abandoned mine. Police also search abandoned mines, but there was an estimated 10,000 mines in Utah. To make matters even worse, Josh stopped talking to police, media, and really all family members and friends that questioned him. As they posted flyers all over town and held candlelight vigils, Josh kept his distance. It was only a few days after Susan's disappearance that Josh moved back to Washington to live with his father after cashing out her retirement fund. He then pretty much went into isolation for 18 months while his father, Stephen, took complete control and shielded him from everyone. Desperate for answers, Josh's sister, Jennifer, volunteered to wear a wire in an attempt to get Josh to confess, but he wouldn't say anything. Stephen then cussed out his own daughter, Jennifer, out of his house, raged that she could ever think those things of her brother. As police really didn't have anything to go off of, they began interviewing everyone they could to learn more about Josh and Susan. It wasn't too much of a surprise when police learned that their marriage was in turmoil. The picture-perfect couple from the outside was arguing often, and it was said that Susan told a friend that Josh wasn't attracted to her anymore. 
he had stopped all forms of physical interactions with her. It was reported that Josh also controlled all their money, even though, remember, Susan made the majority of it. Their argument soon turned into screaming matches, and after Josh had supposedly threatened to hit Susan after an intense argument, Susan went to see a divorce attorney. The attorney encouraged her to videotape herself showing all the assets in the home and attempt to protect those assets if something happened. That video was recorded July 29th of 2008. Police also find a security deposit box that Susan had with the bank that she worked for, and inside they find a handwritten makeshift will and testament that was a full page front and back. The letter specifically stated that this letter was for her friends and family and, quote, all except Josh Powell's husband. I don't trust him, end quote. This handwritten letter, dated in September of 2008, also stated how the marriage was in turmoil and, quote, if I die, it may not be an accident, end quote. She continued to say that she would never leave her sons as well. Now, I don't know about you, Danny, but I don't think it's too far of a reach to think that Josh was responsible or at least had something to do with Susan's disappearance, but what do you think? Uh, yes, him and his father. <laughs> his father, really. I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. Sir, are you hearing any of the stories about your son and you're going to be pissed off at your daughter? Yeah. I don't understand you. Well, hold on to the father because I will talk about him a little bit more. Now, the police took a ton of scrutiny for not arresting Josh, but in that same ABC 2020 episode, the main detective stated that they could arrest him because of the pile of circumstantial evidence, but the district attorney's office specifically told them that they would not file charges until 12 months without a body, although the DA's office declined these statements but would not provide any information on the case when requested. It wouldn't be until 2011 that a very interesting bombshell would be dropped on national TV. You see, Susan's family never gave up hope in finding Susan, and they also did not want anyone to forget that she was still missing. On August 20th of 2011, Susan's parents, Chuck and Judy Cox, stood on a busy intersection near Josh's and Stephen's grocery store that they knew they shopped at often, and held big signs with Susan's photo while people drove by, waving and honking in support. Stephen then shows up, and an awkward confrontation ensues between the two fathers caught by local media cameras. Josh later shows up with the boys in the van, and he also gives an awkward interview to cameras, blaming Chuck for using his sons as pawns. Three days later, Josh finally agrees to sit down for an official media interview with Good Morning America, but it wasn't Josh's interview that got everyone's attention. It was Stevens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. Of course, Josh's interview went as expected and that he wasn't very forthcoming or really tried to convince the public that he wasn't involved, stating he wasn't going to talk about anything his attorney advised him against. But then Steven jumps in and asks to be interviewed. The reporter thought it would be a complete waste of time. However, Steven said that his theory is that she ran off with another man. His reasoning was because Susan was very flirtatious with him, and he flirted back with her often too. He tells the nation that Susan had pressed her breast tightly up against his hand while grabbing one of the boys he was holding, and that she wouldn't let his hands go. He continues by saying it was a very cold day, so it was a nice warm feeling. Oh! <laughs> Danny, I need to hear what you think about this. I can't. I can't even control it until you ask me. What is wrong with you? Yeah. 
Oh my god. But the fact that and I was like picturing like how did her breasts like not let his hands go? <laughs> I'm very confused. That's not how breasts work, <laughs> sir. They don't they can't control themselves. No. Like I don't understand that. Yeah. I hated everything about that. <laughs> I also hate Steven. Yes. Okay. We'll, we'll continue I on talking about Steven. did not appreciate or understand how Josh said that Susan's dad was using his sons as pawns. Like, dude, that's your wife. Yeah. Quote, unquote. Yeah. <laughs> and she's still missing. Yeah. I don't know how at any point of utilizing your family members or even your children to help find her. It's one thing to really use them as quote-unquote pawns but what they were doing was nothing like that so it's like yeah well and steven comes in like when he first appears on camera and there is like tape of this obviously he comes in he's like you can't do this and you know he's talking to um chuck which is susan's dad and he's like you can't do this because there's so many how many other grocery stores are you doing this at chuck how many other you know we we shop here like he was basically saying like it was harassment but i also didn't mention earlier but the Coxes had obviously done tons of media interviews and everything and Chuck even said himself you know being polite wasn't working so we had to call Josh out because it was clear to really everyone that he was being way too suspicious like he was Mm -hmm. not giving a care in the world a few days after her disappearance he moves out like you're not even trying to be innocent you know Well, it was said by different family members and Susan's friends that Susan thought Stephen was creepy. Amen. (laughs) He even hit on her once while they were living in his home. And when Susan told Josh about this, he told her that, yeah, that was my dad. But the interview with Good Morning America not only sparked interest in the public's eye, but also the police's. Stephen also mentions that Josh still has Susan's secrets diaries and that in those diaries they would find that Susan was flirtatious and sexual towards other men and that she initiated those relationships. Because this information was announced, police were able to obtain a search warrant for Stephen's home. The main item that they wanted to retrieve was the eight diaries, although police uncovered a ton of different evidence that was unexpected. Stephen is what is referred to as a voyeur. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, according to Merriam-Webster, a voyeur is, quote, someone who obtains sexual gratification from observing unsuspecting individuals who are partly undressed, naked, or engaged in sexual acts. So he's a peeping Tom. Yes. Mm -hmm. You remember those home videos from Steve and I mentioned before? They were for a much more disturbing purpose. Police seized all of Steven's tapes, computers, and were able to gain access to a locked filing cabinet in his home. They found tons of videos of Susan as Steven was trying to place a mirror under the bathroom door while she laid in bed, and a number of videos of young girls who were previous neighbors. Steven filmed the girls who were 7 and 12 at the time bathing and using the restroom. And just when he thought it couldn't get even more creepy... Stephen kept a lot of Susan's items that he found in her bathroom trash can. In their own separate and sometimes labeled bags, he kept her used cotton swabs, wax strips, tampons, and would also film and narrate himself touching and smelling her dirty underwear and other clothing items. I can't. I always get gut feelings about him, and the second he got brought up, I knew I hated him. <laughs> and there was a reason for it. Yeah. And I was you just were right. praying to God when you said bathroom trash can. <laughs> 
that the tampon wouldn't be in there. And it, it was, was there. It was there. Yeah. And I hated it. Yeah. Police also found a tape that was placed secretly in a bag, so only the audio was recording of him hitting on Susan, and you can clearly hear her explain to him that she'd been meaning to talk to him about how she didn't like the way he kissed her in greeting, and that her own father doesn't even kiss her, after Stephen confesses that he thinks he's falling in love with her. And to top it all off, Stephen wrote and recorded several songs about Susan and published them on his website. His pseudoname was Steve Chantre, and in one song he wrote for Susan titled, I'm Missing You, the lyrics read, quote, I can love you in a secret way. I can love you each and every day, end quote. I have also linked one of his songs that is posted by another user on YouTube below titled, I Said I Love You, if anyone is curious enough to listen. However, I personally could not listen to the full song as I quickly became enraged and disgusted. I can't. I, I just <laughs> lost her words, right? Like, like, who are you? Yeah, and like the fact that this is only happening because you are stupid enough to say, "Don't you cut love- me in? Put me in, coach." Yeah, put me in, <laughs> and also put me in jail. <laughs> he, I guess, he thought, and Jennifer also said in this ABC Twenty Twenty episode that she thought it was her father's weird, like twisted way of like getting everybody's attention off josh but like literally put the spot on light on him and what did they think that the filing cabinet would keep him out <laughs> like stupid stupid criminals the thing that like i love them got my like neck twinging and twitching and uh was when she asked about the way he kissed her and that uh-uh mm-hmm. i'm sorry if any man <laughs> is going yeah. to kiss me like that Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm sure at first it kind of started off. I feel like everyone kind of knows that person that, you know, when you like meet them. Yeah. You're like, oh, these like, this makes me uncomfortable. But like, this is just them. Obviously, her husband told her like, yeah. Yeah. That's just him. But, and I didn't include it originally, but he's telling her in this tape that he said he's watching her lay on the couch and he was extremely aroused and he (sighs) thought she was aroused as well. And she's like no (laughs) and she was very polite about it which like good i would not because i I would be i know i'm married to your side but like (laughs) on fire yeah yeah police were able to rule out steven as a suspect in the disappearance of susan but steven was arrested and pled not guilty to 14 counts of viewerism and one count of child pornography he was convicted and sentenced to five years for the child pornography charge in which he served 30 months. One positive thing that came out of all of that mess, though, was Child Protective Services of Washington State were able to intervene and remove Charlie and Brayden from Stephen's home, as it was clear it was not a safe place for young children to live. Josh was determined to get back custody of the boys as they were placed under the temporary care of their grandparents, Chuck and Judy Cox. Because pretty much everyone suspected Josh as the sole person in Susan's disappearance, her parents, Chuck and Judy, did not want the boys to ever be with Josh and also began to fight for sole custody. Because the boys were now out of Josh's grasp, police obtained a warrant to conduct a second interview with them. This time, Charlie, now six years old, told a different story, but it was clear that he had been coached. Charlie told detectives that he can't talk about Susan or camping and that he always keeps these things a secret. 
Brayden, now four years old, drew a family picture of himself, his brother, and his dad in the minivan, and then volunteered that mommy was in the trunk. Also, I, I didn't want to do a, a specific quote, but he does call her Susan here instead of mom. Oh, wow. Yeah. The boys were still allowed to see their father, Josh, still, but it was always a supervised visit, and at first took place at a secured facility. Josh, however, rented a separate home and began requesting the supervised visits at the home instead of at a different location. Because Child Protective Services' main goal was to have the child reunited if it was in their best interest, the agent began supervising the children at Josh's home. This worried Susan's father, Chuck, but because they were only granted temporary custody of the boys and the state held full custody, there was nothing he could do. On February 1st, 2012, a confident Josh stood in front of the judge awaiting to hear he had been awarded back full custody. However, police in Utah were also determined to keep the boys away from Josh. In originally sealed evidence, Utah detectives sent Washington images seized from Josh's previous home in Westlake City, Utah, that showed incestuous pictures in the form of popular Nickelodeon cartoons. Now, this isn't technically illegal, but the judge in Washington found it concerning enough to grant the Coxes further temporary custody of Charlie and Braden while Josh was ordered to take a psychosexual evaluation and polygraph test. And what is a psychosexual evaluation, you ask? Well, a psychosexual evaluation, or PSE, consists of four main parts. A clinical interview, psychometric test, a physiological exam, a physiological assessment of sexual arousal, and a risk assessment. In latent terms, this evaluation will show if Josh has any deviant sexual thoughts. It would also force him to answer questions about Susan's disappearance in the polygraph test, which he had always refused since day one. So I'm confused at what these cartoon images, like awesome that they are no longer staying with this man, but I didn't understand what that was all about. So I, and I didn't see any photographs or anything, and it was a little bit confusing to me as well. But from what I could get, it was, I'm just going to use Disney as a reference. So like Donald Duck and Daisy Duck, but what about like their children? So like sexual acts between these characters, children's and like family members. Like if you had a cartoon family. Okay. So it was like something. It was like Photoshopped kind of thing. Disturbing, but with cartoon characters. Instead of humans. Okay. That makes sense. But just four days later, on February 5th, 2012, Elizabeth Griffin Hall, who was the ordered child protective agent that would supervise the boys' visit, pulled up into Josh's driveway. The boys excitedly got themselves out of their car seats and ran to the door while Elizabeth was a couple steps behind. When Josh opened the door, he made direct eye contact with Elizabeth and then slammed the door in her face, locking her out. As Elizabeth began pounding on the door, she heard Josh tell Charlie he had a big surprise for him, and then immediately after, she smelled gasoline. A large explosion and fire would overtake the home, and police would recover Josh, Charlie, and Brayden deceased in the home. The medical examiner's office ruled this as a double murder and suicide, as both Charlie and Brayden had chop wounds on their heads and necks and were found laying near a hatchet in the living room, but ultimately, they died from smoke inhalation or carbon monoxide poisoning. 
They also found gasoline in Charlie and Braden's lungs. It was made clear to detectives that Josh planned this as the previous four days he donated all of the boys' toys, rearranged his financial accounts, and filled two five-gallon gas cans. He also sent texts or left voicemails for his family stating that he couldn't live without the boys and that he was sorry to anyone he had hurt, but this was right before he attempted to chop the boys with a hatchet, pouring gasoline on and around their bodies, and lighting a match while he sat on one of the gas cans. I want to go back to the fact that he donated all the toys. Like, why was that even a thought process? Like, why was that something you thought of as you were about to do this horrible heinous act? And I'm sorry, but this is why Child Protective Services and that whole industry makes me so frustrated because they should have never been put in this situation. Mm -hmm. And it's not the kid's fault and they had no control over it. And I get so sick of hearing we try to reunite with family clearly this man is a psychopath yeah and you literally let those kids walk into their death yep like it's horrible and it makes me so frustrated because it's like how many times do we have to tell stories like this yeah or others have to tell stories like this or people have to protest for them to make a change it's so frustrating absolutely preach girl honestly you gave me chills because i feel the exact same way and we could do literally a whole separate podcast on just the foster care system in general and everything that goes And they're in, right, like, they're trying to do the right thing, right? Like, because I think at one point, Child Protective Services was known or was looked at it like, oh, they're taking our kids away. They're just taking kids away for no reason, (laughs) da-da-da-da-da. Like, your episode, last episode, is like, it starts out for a good reason, and then it's just not working anymore yeah yeah like, you can't, it's, you can't keep doing the same thing and expecting different results, and then... Be like, oh, I don't know how this happened. Well, yes, we know, we all know how it happened. It's not a one-off anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And going back to donating his toys, I was also put off by that because my first thought would be like, oh, that's a nice thing to do. Like, yeah, if he's planning on taking their lives, they're not going to need their toys anymore. So some other kids could play with them. But then it was like, like you're not doing anything nice at all. Yeah. In no. the big picture. No. Yeah. Well, and then also many people that um, knew the Powell family suspected that Josh didn't really care about the boys as much as he cared that he didn't want them to talk to the grandparents or police. No, yeah. I was more of like, I can't have you so no one else can have you and I don't like, and I don't want you either. Yep. And that's actually a title of a book that was written about this case. If Uh I can't have you, no one can. Yeah. Um... But essentially, Charlie and Brayden were the only other evidence that could put Josh away for Susan's disappearance and suspected murder. And once he knew he was most likely not getting full custody back, he had to destroy the evidence. Mm -hmm. There are many theories that people in Josh's life may have known more, such as his father, Stephen. However, a year after his release from prison, he died from heart complications. Michael Powell, Josh's brother, was also suspected as to helping Josh dispose of Susan's body, but he too took his own life in 2013. To this day, Susan's body has never been found and no one has ever been charged in connection with her disappearance. Chuck and Judy Cox sued the state of Washington on behalf of Charlie and Braden's wrongful death 
and in 2020 were awarded $98 million as the jury felt that the state was negligent in the connection between Child Protective Services policies. The judge later reduced the jury's awarded amount to $32.8 million. Either way, that is a ton of money, and Chuck stated for the ABC 2020 episode that he's planning on using that money to help other people and save more children. I do also want to add that in the jury's decision, it was made apparent that they did not believe one Child Protective Service agent was at fault, but that the entire system failed the boys. Yeah, I do think that's a good point that, I mean, I would believe that the woman that saw this was horrified for life and really was probably trying to do the right thing. It was a whole system that let her down and those boys down before they even got to that position because the fact that they were even going to his home Mm -hmm. was a red flag right there. Well, that and they, you know, kept saying, like, it's one woman against this, you know, killer crazy man yeah yeah and why would they ever put one woman um and in the lawsuit it states that the policies of trying to reunite children with their families or have them in their home as much as possible was why that was the hugest failure because Mm -hmm. it could have stayed in a secured location supervised with other people but you know that hope of like oh you know it's gonna be too much trauma on the boys well they can't have any trauma you can't even know if they're gonna have trauma because they're gone they're gone yeah that needs to i mean there are some cases where that rule does apply but most of the time it does not and it, sure. that needs to go it, it well does that and i don't think it's you know a general rule should be you know, tossed over a blanket over all of the cases. Yeah, you can't look at all the cases and say, that's all the children belong with their own family. No! Exactly. That's ridiculous. Exactly. I also do want to go back. I definitely do think there is probably something with his brother in the disposal of Susan's body, just because there's a lot of, of course, this is not accurate in any means, because if you take your own life, the story ends there, right? Sure. But a lot of those people that are sub- suspected to being a part of that end up taking their own life, whether that's due to guilt or they're about to be found out or things like that. Um, so that would not shock me by any means if his brother was ultimately involved. But basically, Josh sucks and is a disgusting human being. Amen. Um, and so does his father. Stephen. Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> I, I now don't even... Enjoy that name. <laughs> Sorry, Al Stevens. <laughs> you know those people that ruin it for you? Stevens won. Yeah. And I was just so shocked between all of the research because it was like, it really did start out as a missing person. Well, missing family and then one missing spouse. And then all of these other crazy twists and turns but it's all so tragic and I think a lot of it could have been avoided oh yeah and I mean the start of your story was accurate it's a missing family that will now never be found so yep absolutely but with that that will conclude today's episode let us know your thoughts on Instagram and Facebook at Lago Stories and while you're there don't forget to follow us if you haven't already if you have a case suggestion please reach out through our website at lagostories.net All of today's source material will be linked in the description box below. We'll be back with a new episode in a couple weeks, but until then, stay safe out there. It's a weird world.
thank you to Alexander Nakarada for allowing us to use his sound, Nightmare, for our theme music.